0: Amen. When God overcomes the plans of his enemies in the Old Testament, we're being given a foretaste of the glorious victory of God over all things. When he overcomes the plans of his enemies in the Old Testament stories, we are witnessing a foretaste of what is to come. We long for darkness to be overcome by the light. We long for injustice to be overcome by justice, for wickedness to be prevailed upon by righteousness. And the good news of Christmas is that the blessing of God has come and been wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. The foretastes of the news of the blessing and glory of God in the work of Jesus Christ are given in foretastes in Old Testament stories. We see in the Old Testament the unstoppable blessings of God. And that's really good news. Because the Old Testament helps us see God's purposes are not going to advance because his people finally get it together. It will be because the heart of God and mercy towards sinners and promises of blessing are stronger than sin. And are lasting longer, even eternally, In light of the brokenness of this present evil age. We want the foretaste of this news. We delight to see those glimpses of mercy and power and promises being kept. Because it stirs within us what we love to say about God. That He is sovereign over all things. He's unwaveringly good. And you can trust Him. We come to a place in Numbers 23 where the blessings of God in their unstoppable nature are on full display. Now this chapter, Numbers 23, is part of a unit of stories over three chapters, Numbers 22 through 24. We completed Numbers 22 last week and we begin Numbers 23 today, all part of this united explosive story. The king of Moab wants to destroy Israel. He doesn't think he can do so on his own. The king of Moab wants their destruction and they are located at this point in the story right east of the Jordan River. It's in the 40th year of their wilderness wandering. And the king of Moab, who's called Balak, he decides to finance an internationally known prophet for hire, a seer named Balaam. He wants Balaam to come to Moab, curse the Israelites so that they can easily be defeated by the Moabite forces. This is Balak's plan. Now as Balaam eventually journeys toward Moab, There's a lot inside that word, eventually. That's all Numbers 22. I'm tempted to just rehash a bunch of things, but I won't. But eventually, he is journeying to Moab. And the reader has learned in Numbers 22, Balaam's journey doesn't start with his heart resolved to follow the Lord. Balaam intends to go to Moab and do the will of King Balak. So the Lord opposes Balaam through an extraordinary experience with his donkey along the way to Moab. And when Balaam finally sees the sword-bearing angel of the Lord before him and the donkey, Balaam realizes the grave danger he's been in all along. And the Lord directs Balaam to go to Moab and speak only the words that I give you. Balaam doesn't share those juicy tidbits of information with the people he's traveling with. And he doesn't tell them to King Balak when he arrives to see the king in Moab. He keeps those pieces and details close to his chest. We will find out in the passage this morning where Balak will learn for the first time that though Balaam was paid to curse Israel, Balaam will only confirm the blessing and heart of God toward the people. He can do nothing else. Where is Balaam when this chapter begins? At the very end of chapter 22, we left him at a particular location. In chapter 22, his location is given in verse 41. The last verse of chapter 22 says that in the morning Balak brought Balaam to Bamoth Baal. And from there he saw a fraction of the people. This particular location means the houses of Baal. It's a place of pagan worship. These would have been locations where the deity, whether it's Chemosh or others of the Moabite pantheon, would be praised and sacrificed to. And Balak is taking Balaam there. And part of the geographical location will be a visibility to the people he's going to curse. Notice it says at the end of verse 41, from there he saw a fraction of the people. Perhaps Balak's thinking is, I don't want him to just, you know, come to my local palace in Moab and over lunch he pronounced some curses. I want him to actually go on the high place. I want him to look over the people of Israel and hurl curses at them. It's as if he needs them visible in some way. This one, perhaps in Balak's thinking, will increase the potency of these curses. So it's important to Balak that Balaam see. He can't see all, but he can see at least part of the people he's been brought to ensure the demise of. This won't be the only location. After the episode this morning, Balak will think, well, maybe we need to move to a second spot And so before the second location, he's going to go to another place. Before the second oracle, he's going to go to a second place. After that doesn't work out, surprise, surprise, Balak says, well, maybe we should go somewhere else. You notice that Balak's thinking seems to be, well, if it won't work here, maybe it'll work over there. And yet because the Lord of heaven and earth has jurisdiction in all places, there is nowhere Balak can take Balaam that will undermine the purposes of God. Balak is a fool. Balaam would be foolish to follow Balak's direction. Balaam would be wise to submit to the Lord. We'll see whether he ends up doing that. In verses 1 to 4, there's a preparation of the altars and the sacrifices before an oracle is pronounced. This is probably based in the very pagan superstitious rituals and practices already known in Moab and elsewhere. Balaam doesn't hear these instructions and uh, give these instructions, in other words. And Balaam say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Offering sacrifices and building altars. Instead, these various activities were part of calling upon the gods of the ancient Near East. So Balaam, relying on some of that innate knowledge he has, build for me here seven altars. Prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Now, maybe it wouldn't have been a surprise to us if we saw a multitude of sacrifices specified. There are times, even in Genesis and Job and elsewhere, where multiple sacrifices are given on an altar. But it is a little strange that he says, build me seven altars. Because that means altars at multiple locations. It's not like they're all stacked on top of one another. The seven altars are going to be spread out. And on each of these altars, a ram and a sheep is offered. I'm sorry, a ram and a bull. Seven bulls, seven rams, one pair of each animal for all seven altars. So the number seven seems to be quite significant there. Outside the scriptures, it has been discovered by ancient Near Eastern scholars a text written in Akkadian. An ancient text which calls upon various Canaanite deities through building multiple altars. And this has led some Old Testament writers to say... What if what Balaam and Balak are doing is calling upon help that at least in Balaam's mind would be contending with and maybe stronger than the God of Israel? Because Balaam may need help for what he is wanting to do or at least feeling tension about doing. The Lord has said, you will speak only the word I give in your mouth. And yet he says, build for me here seven altars. This would show that Balaam is not someone of sound theological thinking and sense. Balaam is no doubt uh, in his polytheistic, many God-worshipping instincts, building seven altars that further confirm the wrong ways of thinking about the world. And yet in verse 2, Balak does this. He builds them just as Balaam has said, seven altars and a lot of animals. And I just want you to know that Seven pairs of bulls and rams are not the easiest thing for uh, an average uh, animal worker in the ancient Near East to come across in that day. That's an extraordinarily expensive sacrifice. Seven bulls and seven rams on these seven altars is an incredibly lavish, expensive sacrifice. It's the kind of sacrifice you could make if you were king of Moab. So Balak is able to do this. And he builds it, as Balaam says, and they offer on each altar a bull and a ram. Now, I just want you to notice that God has not said to Balaam to do this. I'm willing to say as an interpreter here that in verses 1 and 2, we're not seeing Balaam do what God has told him to do. We're seeing Balaam do what Balaam is drawing upon with his own confused and distorted religious practices. So he's doing that and Balak is right on board with it because they're familiar with this idea of building a bunch of altars and calling upon the gods. Now Balaam says to Balak in verse 3, stand beside your burnt offering and I'm going to go. That visibility by the offering seems to also be important. It'll happen later as well. So there's a separation now. Balaam is going to move away from Balak. Balak is going to remain by the burnt offerings. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, he says, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And so he goes to a bare height. We don't know how far away from King Balak, but here's what happens next in verse 4. The Lord meets him. We don't know what that involved. Is this some kind of visionary experience? Earlier in the Torah, God has spoken to the prophet Moses through the appearance of fire and cloud. We're not given a detail beyond. In verse 4, the Lord has come with a word from Balaam. Balaam says, I've arranged the seven altars, and I've offered on each altar a bull and a ram. So Balaam says, hey, I've done this thing. No prior indication that God told him to do that. But the word the Lord puts in Balaam's mouth gets the emphasis. In verse 5, in verse 6, Balaam is going to return with a word for Balak. And it is a word from the God of heaven and earth. It is the God that has made Balak and Balaam and all of Moab and all of Israel who governs all of creation. He puts a word in Balaam's mouth and says, now go to Balak and say thus. Which means Balaam is not to go with a, here's a word according to Balaam. I know you want to hear it this way, Balak, so I'm going to give this to you so that it's pleasing in your sight. Rather, he is being compelled by the Lord with a word to speak that is of heaven. Balaam here is going to resist Balak's wishes. Last week, when we were thinking about that donkey ride, I observed together that the donkey was resisting Balaam's wishes. Balaam wanted to go in a particular way. The donkey was going this way. And then all of a sudden, uh, the Lord enabled the donkey to share. Now, that word, that enablement, that powerful act with something that seems to be resistant was then going to be played out between Balak and Balaam. Balaam might have been frustrated at the donkey on the road. But before this is over, Balaam is actually the donkey. Balaam is the one resisting the one who says, I want it to be this way. But the Lord enables with a powerful word a certain other direction. And Balaam, Balaam here is under the authority of the Lord. We're told in verse 6 that he returned to Balak. And behold, he, Balak, and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. We don't know if the princes were there already when Balaam walked away earlier. Or if they've come in the meantime because Balaam has gone so long. We have no idea what span of time unfolds between Balaam saying, I'm going to go and I'll come back. Well, Balaam does return. Balak is there with some other Moabite leaders. And no doubt they are waiting with bated breath. Let's hear the curses. Let's begin. And Balaam takes up his discourse in verses 7 through 10. The content of the oracle or the discourse will only confirm God's blessing toward the Israelites. This is not a long discourse. This oracle is four verses long, seven through ten. The rest of it, the aftermath, is the response to it. So the the oracle proper, the actual content of it, four verses where he takes up this discourse to reflect the word God has put into his mouth. And he begins with rehearsing some history. The history opens this way. From Aram, Balak has brought me. He doesn't, in other words, get right into the content of what Balak's hoping for. He, he reminds uh, the whole company that's gathered why we are here today. Why have we gathered here? Well, here's where I was. I was in Aram. And from Aram, Balak has brought me. And we know that that was no easy task. It involved messengers. It involved negotiations. It involved weeks of travel. But he just simply condenses it. Balak has brought me from my homeland. And then like expected hebrew poetic parallelism works the second line says something similar to the first from aram balak has brought me the king of moab that's balak has brought me we were to imply here from the eastern mountains balak and king of moab are in parallel has brought me and from the eastern mountains are parallel there regarding Balaam. He says the same thing, and in poetry and prophetic discourse in the Old Testament, often the thing in the first line is repeated in a different way in the second line. That helps us as interpreters because if we get an idea of what one of the lines is saying, it helps us with the other. From Aram, Balak has brought me. The king of Moab, implied, brought me from the eastern mountains. What was his uh, command? Well, he reminds us we're all here today for a specific mission. I wasn't brought to just do whatever I want. I've been brought to curse Jacob. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. Jacob and Israel are put there in parallel. Because remember in Genesis, Jacob was renamed. You shall be Israel. And Jacob's renaming here is what lies behind the end of verse 7. Come curse Jacob. That doesn't mean the individual patriarch. That means the Israelites. The Israelites. They are the corporate Jacob. They are the Israel nation. Come denounce Israel. That verb is very strong. It means to reject with anger and gusto. To denounce means with one's words and with one's actions and no doubt even body language. To speak and to behave in such a way against that there is no doubt whether this person is for or against the people in the the oracle. Denounce. Denounce. One writer says that it would convey a sense of great indignation and anger. This is not some light dismissal. Come, curse them. Come, denounce them. The reason for this, we must recall, in chapter 22, is that Balak is concerned of Israel's great numbers. He knows that nearby kings named Sihon and Og have already been defeated. And earlier, the Moabite nation had some land taken... By one of those already defeated kings. So he's thinking to himself. There's no way we stand a chance. If the people who defeated us earlier. had been defeated by Israel. And so in verse 7. Come and curse Israel. Denounce them. Is a way of saying. I want you to put them at a disadvantage. I need the balance tipped in the other way. So that if it's tipped in that direction. I can easily conquer them. That's Balak's thinking. His military strategy. Is initiated by a spiritual one. But now we move to the present moment. Not just a rehearsal of history in verse 7. Here is in verse 8 the core of what the first oracle is about. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? And that's a negative way at the end with that question of speaking positively in terms of blessing. We We could say it in other words, how could I curse whom God has blessed? In other words, I, in my words, would only be able to reflect what God himself has earlier decreed. And he has not decreed that they are people to be cursed, so how could I curse whom God has not cursed? Picking up the language, then, of denouncing, how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? These two rhetorical questions in verse 8 are also in parallel. They're a little couplet, couplets of questions And the answer is obvious. He doesn't have to explicitly state it, but we shall for our purposes. How can I? And the answer is, I can't. There is no way. It's not like, how can I? Well, let's consider all the possible options. No, 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 no. no, This is a rhetorical question to end with saying you cannot. You are not able to. How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? He is unable to. That's the point. I am not able Balaam is a long way from home. And Balak has gone through a lot of lengthy measures to get him here. And for the purpose of cursing the people. Can you imagine what's going through Balak's mind at this moment when these words would be stated? How can I denounce the one? What do you mean, how can you? How can I curse those? who? What do you mean, how can you? You're the only one we called upon to do this. We brought you all the way from the Euphrates. We want you to come into this area for this purpose. What do you mean, how can you? This is not Balaam's first day on the job. He's an internationally known seer. And now he is explicitly stating an inability. And if you're Balak, you might have thought it would have been nice to know that a long time ago. And then given their vantage point, verse 9 continues the present situation. Not only in verse 8 is he unable to curse those whom God has blessed, in verse 9 he begins to talk out loud, no doubt given the view that he's got. What a view. He says, for from the top of the crags, this would no doubt be in Bamoth Baal at the end of chapter 22-41, where he's visualizing a group of the people from a distance. From the top of the crags, I see him. Now, him might sound strange, but remember what we've just seen in parallel. We've just seen Jacob and Israel. So given the fact that Israel can be known corporately as the son of God in Exodus 4.22, or Jacob corporately, saying I see him is another way of saying I'm looking at Jacob right now. I see him. So I see him here. This means the Israelites as Jacob. I see the people. And I think we can confirm that by the very next statement. Behold a people. So you have to hold those in parallel just like we've seen previously. I see the people. Behold. And they are dwelling alone, not counting itself among the nations. The king can see what Balaam is seeing, they're looking there at the top of that area, and they are looking down upon the people to whatever degree they can see the people. Some fraction of them, we're told, in chapter 22, 41, he sees a fraction of them, and he says, I behold them, and there they are, and they're they're dwelling alone. They seem to stand out. They seem to stand apart. One writer puts it this way, they are being viewed here as being singled out by God. They're not all mixed up with all the other nations in the land of Canaan. They're just dwelling alone right there. God is their God and they are his people and they have been redeemed out of Egypt by God for this purpose. So here he is viewing all of this and he sees them as a people dwelling alone, not counting itself among nations. They, They are secure. They are blessed. The Lord is with them. Balaam sees degrees of this already. And then he says in verse 10, the last part of his oracle, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? What have we, what have we just seen with, these, uh, with this uh, phrasing? Another parallel. Jacob is parallel with Israel. Who can count the dust of Jacob? That's, that's imagery of something numerous. We're thinking about dust and thinking about stars. And we should think about stars and dust going all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis... Chapter 15, Abraham was told that from your family will come offspring, Abraham, from you. And Abraham was told, look up into the sky and number the stars if he could count them and so shall his offspring be. He was given a sense of the innumerability, what would seem like a mighty multitude that would come by the hand of God. And then in Genesis 13, we're told, God says to Abraham, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So the dust imagery of innumerability, a countless multitude, if you will, that's rooted in Genesis 13, 16. And it's picked up in a couple other spots in Genesis. When Balaam says, who can count the dust of Jacob? The reader of Numbers, knowing Genesis, says, look, Balaam recognizes God is keeping his promises. Because this multitude... Is exactly what God said he would bring from the family of Abraham. And Balaam is confirming the faithfulness of God and confirming the promises of God. And that is not what Balak brought him for. That is not what I'm paying you to do, he must be thinking. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? And of course, the answer to that question must also be obvious to us. Obvious enough to not even need to be explicitly stated. No one can count the dust of Jacob. The fourth part of Israel could be a reference to the setup at the tabernacle. How many sides to the tabernacle? Well, there are four. And if the Israelites are being viewed by Balaam from this upraised place where he's looking down below and sees a fraction of them, he might be looking at that quarter or fourth part. Here you might have, in other words, given the placement of their camp, he says, I see a fourth of them. I see part of their encampment. The present questions, though, Balaam believes are obvious. I can't curse whom God has cursed. I couldn't even begin to number those God has multiplied. Balaam says at the end of verse 10, let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. He seems to be thinking of the Israelites as under the favor and protection and blessing of God. And Balaam says, I would like that. Let me die the death of the upright. Let my end be like his. When he sees the Israelites and having received this word of God to say in the hearing of King Balak, even if Balak is cringing at these words and questions, Balaam seems to be saying, I would want to be blessed or at peace with, um, at peace like they are. Let me die the death of the upright. Let my end be like his. We learn here again that Balaam is not an Israelite. And he wants to be blessed like the children of Abraham. Balaam will not be blessed like the children of Abraham. He will not die the death of the upright. Balaam refuses the Lord. Balaam will align himself against the people of Israel. But it sounds good at first. Because he says, Let me die the death of the upright. And you might think to yourself, oh good Balaam. You know, let's encourage him on. Because he wants to join the people of God. No, not so fast. You know, it reminds me, Balaam's uh, remark here reminds me of a lot of people who say they want to be a Christian without following Christ. You know, Balaam would love to die the death of the upright. Balaam would love to have his end be like theirs. But Balaam cannot go on as Balaam does for that to be true. It's like those who say, I want to go to heaven. And they don't want to submit to the Lord of heaven. But they want the blessing of God without love for God. They want forgiveness without repentance. Oh, Balaam should be like Ruth. Balaam should say, your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. That is not what Balaam wants. But Balaam looks at their situation and says, I would, I would love that. But there is no ultimate blessing from God without knowing Him and worshiping Him. No forgiveness without repentance. No heaven without trusting Christ as Lord. It is Christ. And Balaam here would make the same error that many might make looking at some sort of external thing and thinking, I would like that, but without following the Lord. And that's why Balaam is a fool. Because we know in the fullness of the word of God. Balaam's story does not go the direction of his expressed desire. At least outwardly. His expressed desire to die the death of the upright. He will show himself to be wicked and against the Lord. Now we've seen then with the oracle in verses 7 to 10. In verse 7 he reviews some history. Where did I come from and what was I brought here to do? And then in verses 8 And uh, verses 8 through the first part of 10, he makes some statements in the form of rhetorical questions about how he's unable to do some things. Unable to curse the people. Unable to count the people. He watches them. There's such a a people there alone under the blessing of God. And Balaam says, in fact, you know, that looks pretty good to me. This is the first of four oracles. And Balak's response is exactly what you'd expect if you were Balak. In verse 11, he says to Balaam, what have you done to me? See, Balak has a question as well. It's just a sound like the ones Balaam has been asking. Balak's Balak's question is a question out of deep distress. Balak is incredulous, as one writer put it, with regard to what Balaam has just done. And so he rebukes the seer. What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies. And behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And even that's a complicated way of uh, phrasing it. Because it's not as if Balaam is pronouncing new blessings. His blessing over Israel sounds simply like confirming they're already blessed. That's what Balaam's blessings are sounding like. So Balaam says, all you're doing is blessing them. Well, what he's doing is not cursing the people. And instead affirming that they're blessed... But for Balak, that's all the same. He's he's seeing this as Balaam failing miserably to do what he had been called and paid to do. He's personally incensed. What have you done to me? Now, yes, I mean, Balaam's presumed task would have benefited the Moabites, Balak is thinking. But for sure, Balak is watching his whole plan and a whole lot of money, he thinks, just evaporate. What have you done to me, he says. I took you to curse my enemies. You've done nothing but bless them. Balaam's answer is another question. Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? There's a soberness to these words because Balaam has learned on the road to Moab, he was in grave danger in planning to do the will of Balak and oppose the Lord and his people. It was utter folly. And Balaam's language is taking care now to speak something. In other words, he's treading a lot more carefully. We look at Balaam's question here and we can understand exactly what he is processing as he's speaking it out loud. The Lord has said, you will speak the words I put into your mouth. And that's what the question sounds like as well. Mustn't I say what the Lord gives me to say in my mouth? We were told earlier in chapter 23, verse 5, the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. So we're told that the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, and now he says to King Balak, Don't you realize that's what I have to say? I'm going to say what I've been given. Well, Balak has different expectations. We're going to talk about missing and passing each other here. Balak has one idea about what's to happen. Balaam, his fulfillment is of the Lord's will and not Balak's will. And this is because the people of God are not a people cursed by God. This is a lesson in the Old Testament and it is a lesson in the New. This is not something unique to Numbers 22-24. to 24. The people of God, the people who know God and walk with God and worship God. These are not a people cursed by God. Our testimony will forever be that we are those blessed by God, the Lord of heaven and earth. We're blessed by God because we have been loved by God. We will forever be recipients of His perfect love. He cares for His people. He sustains His people. He guides His people. He will receive His people to Him at death. He will raise His people in victory at the coming of Christ. He will forever be and will glorify His people in His presence forever with joy and peace. God has blessed us as His people. And Balak thought... Balak thought he could separate the people of God from the love of God, but he can't. He can't separate the people of God from the love of God. Who shall separate them from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or Balaam or King Balak or all the forces of Moab? The answer is none of those. None of those can separate the people of God from the love of God. Not all the altars with all the rams and bulls they could find in Moab. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. The people of God are eternally, blessedly secure. Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a blessed comfort. Let's pray.